Well, good morning. I'm Pastor Steve. It's good to be with you. And right now here at Faith Bible Church, we are in a series through the Sermon on the Mount. That is Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 in the New Testament. This message that Jesus preaches to the crowds that gathered around him early in his ministry. And as we have noted the first two weeks in our series, that this section of the Bible fits into the overall teaching and scope of Scripture. If I was going to assign three words that would capsulize Scripture, it would be the words creation, fall, and redemption. God created the earth and all that is in it, and it was good. But then man and woman sinned, and God's good creation was tainted. And because of that sin, man and God were separated. And from that point forward, God's plan has been at work to bring back his good creation through a work of redemption. The pinnacle of redemption was when Jesus, God's one and only Son, in obedience to the Father, came to earth and died on a cross after living a sinless life here on earth so that he could be a suitable substitute for you and for me. And through faith in him, a person can be made right with God. And then Jesus just didn't stay in a grave, but he rose again from the dead, proving that he is God. And That work of redemption is what allows all of us, all of the world, to have the potential through faith of being able to be right with God. Now, in this overall movement of Scripture, from creation to fall to redemption... There is a theme that unfolds through scripture about the kingdom. And the kingdom is the end result. It is the time when God's good creation is restored. It is a time where God will once again dwell with his people. And as scripture unfolds, the message of the kingdom unfolds with more information and more information. We're told in 2 Samuel 7 that a son of David will sit on David's throne forever and ever. And as the prophets look forward to that kingdom, we see that that is a kingdom of righteousness. That God will rule in the person of his Son, the Anointed One, the Messiah, on David's throne forever and ever over a kingdom of righteousness. And to get into that kingdom, a person has to be righteous. Israel didn't question that. When John the Baptist comes on the scene in Matthew 3, John's message is, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Matthew 4, Jesus starts sharing that same message right from the beginning of his ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you want to enter into the kingdom, you have to be right with God. Israel wasn't questioning the fact 
that a person has to be right in order to enter the kingdom. That a person had to be righteous before they could enter the kingdom. But what Israel was questioning is this. What kind of righteousness is necessary? Am I righteous enough? So as the Sermon on the Mount opens, Jesus gives us glimpses, pictures, of how a person who is right with God should live. Little snippets, marks of a righteous person. Very counterintuitive. And we see right at the beginning that the, the person who is right with God realizes that they're not righteous. In other words, in order to be righteous, a person has to come to the point where they recognize that they cannot have a righteousness of their own. And Jesus, again, giving us these glimpses, these pictures of what it looks like for a person to be right with God, gives us glimpses as followers of Jesus what our lives should look like. And we're going to see as the sermon continues to unfold that there's really only one person who's truly truly righteous, and that's God himself. That no one in and of themselves can be righteous enough. Pictures of righteousness. Now today Jesus is going to, following these these verses 3 through 12, where he has given us these glimpses, is going to show us, is going to talk with us about true disciples of Jesus and the power of what it means to be living out righteousness in the world in which we live. That... Those who are following Jesus, true followers of Jesus, are actually reflecting Him. He's going to talk about being a witness. He's going to talk about those who accept His word and who become His true disciples. The powerful opportunity they have to be a testimony of Jesus. And he's going to do it with two very common illustrations. Salt and light. Let's look at the verses. I'll read them out loud. Starting in Matthew 5 verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt becomes tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works And glorify your Father who is in heaven. 
we're going to see that the person who is living out righteousness, the person whose life is reflecting Jesus, the person who's following after Jesus and who is living out the reality of their relationship with Jesus Christ, that person has the potential of a very powerful testimony. My youngest son uh, works at a Whole Foods grocery store in Minneapolis. And over New Year's weekend, Barbara and I went to visit him. And we went to his store to see him. And he was very excited to show us his store. And one of the very first things he said to me was, Dad, do you know that there's not one item in this store that has artificial trans fats? Shane, I didn't know that. And he was so proud to tell me of the quality of the food in the store. In fact, upon further digging, I found out that there's nothing in that store that has artificial color, artificial flavoring, artificial preservatives, and, and no artificial sweeteners. I guess they just sell fruit. But I thought, this kid is the perfect hire for Whole Foods because that's who he is. When he was in high school, I don't know what got into him, but he became the healthiest eater I've ever known. He he found this list of the most healthy foods and put it on our refrigerator. And when he put it up, the number one was lemons. And all of a sudden he started eating raw lemons. It just grossed me out. But he lives it. So that when he's at Whole Foods, all he's doing is talking with people about how he actually lives. He's kind of a walking testimony to Whole Foods. And what Jesus is saying to you and to me, those of us who are here this morning who are followers of Jesus, is that we are really called to be walking testimonies to Jesus. We are to be living illustrations of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is going to talk about that with two very common illustrations. The illustration of salt and the illustration of light. So we're going to begin in looking at verses 13 through 15 as Jesus calls his true disciples to be salt and light in the world. We begin with salt. Notice with me verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. Simple sentence. You are the salt of the earth. Bible teachers over many years have looked at that word picture of salt and tried to grapple what, with what that would have meant to Jesus' original hearers of this message. Those who were gathered around him as he taught this. What was the significance of what Jesus was saying? What's the significance of salt in that culture? And 
the arguments usually kind of fit into three categories. Some would say that the function of salt that Jesus refers to here is the fact that it creates thirst. It, it saying that you are the salt of the earth is saying that you, as Jesus' followers, should be creating a thirst in people for Jesus Christ. I used to work in a corrugated paper factory when I was in college in Omaha, Nebraska. And in that paper factory, there were no windows. There was just uh, two garage doors on each end. And in the heat and humidity of Omaha, in the summers, when we were working next to the corrugator, it was about anywhere between like 106 degrees up in that room. It was grotesque. And I would lose, I'd come home after a day, and I would see that I would lost about seven pounds in one day of water weight. And they used to try to get us, when we worked on the corrugator, to take salt tablets. Now, I know that's really controversial, and some say they actually hurt you, but it's been thought, and it was definitely thought in Jesus' day, because there's extra-biblical writings saying that Roman soldiers did this, that salt, taking salt, would cause a person to thirst for more water so that they would take in more water. And in this arid region, this dry region, it would have been important for a person to stay hydrated. So some look at this picture when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, and say, my role as the salt of the earth is my life should create a thirst for Jesus. Some look at salt, and they say, no, salt here is a preservative. It is... It is used to prevent decay. A couple of years ago, Barbara and I were in Nashville, Tennessee, and we went to the Hermitage, the home of Andrew Jackson. And my favorite thing was to see Jackson's kitchen and his smokehouse. And in the smokehouse are these big troughs. And every year they would do hundreds of pounds of hams that they would put in those troughs and cover them with salt to preserve the hams. And here... Those who would say, that's what Jesus is talking about, salt as a preserver, as, as want something that prevents decay. Look at this verse and say, well, Jesus is saying that the presence of Jesus' followers should be there uh, to be salt means to prevent our culture from decaying further. And then some look at this and they would say that, well, the salt is just like salt like we would put on our food. It enhances flavor of food. And so they would say that's the function of the salt. It's hard to get definitive here about exactly the full ramifications of why Jesus chose the word salt. I think when you look at verses 14, 15, and 16... The concept that best fits all of these verses is that Jesus is simply saying, kind of along with the first position, that your life, my life, Jesus' disciples' lives, those true disciples, when someone sees your life, it should create a thirst in them to know more of Jesus Christ. And that seems parallel with what Jesus says next in verse 14 when he says, You are the light of the world. Light permeates darkness. And Jesus says, You are the light of the world. We're going to see in just a few moments how 
When Jesus refers to his followers as being light of the world, there's an entire background to that word picture. Clear back in the book of Isaiah, we see in Isaiah 42 and 49 that as the Father talks about the suffering servant, the one that we know to be Messiah, he's said to be a light to the Gentiles. And we're going to see that carry through the book of Matthew and the book of John. And so here, Jesus is saying to his followers, as you follow me, you actually are going to be reflecting my light through your life. You are the light of the world. And as a light, you permeate the darkness. You can't have, you can't hide light. And he uses the imagery here. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. My mom was born in Minneapolis, St. Paul. And as a young girl, she uh, moved from there, where her father had a store on Lake Street, uh, moved to Seattle for my grandmother's health. And while they were living in Seattle, before they moved to Fort Collins, Colorado, uh, it was during World War II. And mom has recounted to me many times about how they would have evenings where they would have blackouts and there would be people that would go through the streets and you would get ridden up if you had any light emanating from your house because they were fearful of being bombed in Seattle during the war. So they would have times when they would practice these blackouts. You think about a whole city trying to hide itself with no light at all. It seems impossible. And Jesus here says in his day, you think about a city up on a hill, pitch black night. How are you going to hide that light? Or even in your house, you light a lamp. You don't light a lamp in your house and then, and then take a, a basket or a bowl and put over the top of it. No, what's the point of that? No, you light the lamp and then you put it on the lampstand. Lampstand that illumines all of the darkness. So Jesus here says, with two simple illustrations, that his followers, his true disciples, have this phenomenal opportunity as a witness. As, as Jesus' followers, as his true disciples, live out what it looks like to be righteous. They actually end up being a testimony to the person of Jesus Christ. They end up being salt. In my mind, most likely, creating a thirst for Jesus. In a light, in a dark place. Illuminating the hope and the future that's found in the person of Jesus Christ. Barbara and I have for about 20 years been involved with youth exchange through Rotary International. And we have hosted two students, one from Brazil, one from Germany. And then since then I've been involved more in the administration of youth exchange. Right now, Barbara and I serve kind of as as a husband and wife as what's called the youth counselor. So we have a, a young girl from South America who our, our club is sponsoring. She's a student at Lenmar High School. And we check in with her every month to make sure that things are going okay. Is she getting along okay with her host family? 
One thing that's very important in youth exchange, we see it on the American side, we see it on the foreign side, is that when a country sends that exchange student, that student represents more than themselves, more than their family, more than their rotary club. That student represents their country. And for many, those students at Linmar High School, their total exposure to the country of Paraguay may very well be that girl. They will judge Paraguay by that girl. And Jesus here is saying that as his followers, we are in a possessed, in a position of representing. For many, it may be their only representation of the reality of the person of Jesus Christ. So Jesus says, you're salt. You are light. You are in the position of creating thirst for me. You are in a position of illuminating in a dark place. Now, I want to get the Old Testament background of this. So I'm going to, if you want to, you can follow along or you can turn. Keep your finger in Matthew 5, but I'm going to turn to Isaiah chapter 42. In Isaiah 42, we find the Father talking about the suffering servant. And in Isaiah 42 verse 1, just to set the stage, it says, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nation. So it's God talking about this suffering servant, the one that we know as Isaiah unfolds, is a reference to the Messiah. And when we get down to verse 6, it says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. Clear back here, God's plan is for the Messiah to be a light, not just to the Jew, but to the ends of the earth. Look at chapter 49, verse 6. 49 verse 6, he says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. We come to Matthew. Matthew writing to this Jewish audience many allusions back to the Old Testament. And in Matthew chapter 4 verse 16, just a page back from where we are, quoting, says, The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land in shadow of death upon them a light dawned. You see, Matthew sees Jesus as being this prophesied light. Then we go to the book of John, and John repeats it over and over and over, quoting Jesus' words. I'm just going to read one of them in John Chapter 8, verse 12. And in John 8, verse 12, it says this. Then Jesus spoke to them, saying, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So Jesus here, who is the light of the world, 
says to his true disciples, those who are going to put their, their, their faith in him and believe his word, he tells them, you're light too. Your life lived out as my follower is actually a reflection of my light. And we're going to see, as we go further in the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus, from Matthew 5, verse 17, through chapter 7, verse 12, is going to give us hands-on examples of what it looks like to be light, to be salt. In other words... How we live for Jesus in our relationships, in our marriages, and how we care for the poor, how we view our money, how we view our possessions. All of that, when we live it in a way, when we live our life in a way where it demonstrates Jesus Christ and His righteousness, we end up being a light for Him. The Apostle Paul, and I'm not going to turn there this morning, but in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 8 through 10, Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, carries on this light metaphor, this illustration of light, continuing to challenge believers that this is our role, that we are salt and light, that we are the ones who may be the only glimpse of Jesus people see. And we have the opportunity to create thirst for the person of Jesus Christ. This fall, I've mentioned it before, the pastors here at Faith Bible Church had the privilege of traveling to Wisconsin and hearing Dr. Joe Stoll preach for a couple of days, the longtime president of Moody Bible Institute. And Dr. Stoll, about these verses, verses 13, 14, and 15 said this, and 16 said this, We are not here to do cultural warfare, but to show the world a better way. We are not here to do cultural warfare, but to show the world a better way. Well, how do I do that? Well, verse 16 tells us, Jesus draws this to an application in verse 16. And in verse 16, we read this. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Disciple of Jesus, let your light shine for Jesus so that the people of around you are drawn to Him and ultimately become children of God. They end up becoming Followers of Christ so that they are brought into right relationship with our Heavenly Father and can glorify Him as sons and daughters. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works. This is very different from what the Pharisees were doing. And as we continue in our study, we're going to see that the Pharisees were all about doing quote-unquote good works so that people would look at them. 
That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is, Jesus is saying we do genuine acts of righteousness so that people won't look at us, but they'll look to him. I loved what Dr. Stoll said about these verses when he said this. I have made a commitment to do random acts of kalos. That's the Greek word for good. I've made a commitment to do random acts of good every day to stay in shape. Isn't that great? We think of staying in shape as like going to the gym, going and using the elliptical, swimming, going for a run, going for a walk, eating healthy. That's what we think about staying in shape. This is what Stoll said. I've made a commitment to do random acts of good, callous, every day to stay in shape. When I was a kid, we made annual trips to Colorado, pretty much annual trips, because that's where my mom grew up from the age 12 up through college, when she left for college in Fort Collins. And uh, I love going to Colorado. I caught my first trout in the Poudre River. I have fond memories of going up to Horsetooth Reservoir and fishing with my dad. Picnics, hikes, the mountain air. And we did a lot of day trips from 402 Wayne Street in Fort Collins, where my grandmother's home was, up into the mountains. And one of those day trips, we decided, my parents took us to an inactive gold mine. I don't remember where it was. It's up in the mountains somewhere. And we got on this little miniature train, and they gave everyone a big, heavy blanket. And I can remember as a little kid, wrapping it. It's hot outside, but we're going down inside of this gold mine. So we wrapped up in these blankets, and we went down into the mine. And when we got to the bottom, they had a little talk about mining techniques in the 1800s. But then what they did, I will never forget. They turned off the lights. It was the darkest dark I had ever experienced in my life. It freaked me out. I was uncomfortable. Because when do we ever experience absolute dark. We don't experience it at nighttime outside. There's always a star or moon or reflection of a street lamp or a yard light. If you're out in the country, there's always some, a little bit of light. You go into your house, you probably have a microwave with a little digital number on it or something. We we never really experience absolute darkness, but I'm in this gold mine. It's absolute Darkness that you could put your hand in front of your face and you couldn't see anything. It's so dark. One of my favorite things to do with my little granddaughters is to give them flashlights. A flashlight in the hand of a kid is such a good thing. They, you can have so much fun with a flashlight. Even if it's just like a little itty bitty flashlight like you'd hook onto your keychain. When you are in absolute Darkness. Think about what it's like if you just had a little tiny flashlight and flick it on. Oh, great 
think there's some light in here. One of the things that we face as Christians in this world is the fact that I'm guessing you feel like I do, that I'm feeling like our, we are increasingly becoming a darker and darker culture. In my 56 years of life, I cannot remember our culture being as dark as it is now. You cannot even turn on a television set between 7 o'clock and 9 o'clock on the network channels without carefully monitoring what your children might see. Those used to be kind of considered family times, not anymore. It's grotesque. And all around us we see this, this gloom, this dark, this rapidly spiraling culture and we look at it and we say, there's no hope. We, it gets discouraging. It's oppressive. We, we feel like it's just how much darker can it get, but we've got to hang on to a truth. And that is this. We're light. And how much brighter does light shine than in the darkest, darkest place? And instead of us becoming discouraged about the rapid deterioration of our culture, it's an opportunity for us to do what Dr. Stoll says, to show the world a better way through our relationships, through our marriages, through our values, through our priorities. And that's what we're going to be looking at as the Sermon on the Mount unfolds. Counterculture, right living. Righteousness lived out. Now, when we come to a passage like this, it's important for us to say, how am I doing? How am I doing with my light? And it tends, in, in, as Christians in culture, we tend often to succumb to pendulum swings. We tend to either succumb to a pendulum swing where we come over here and we withdraw from the culture. Uh, I don't want to have anything to do with the culture. I don't want to have any part of it. I don't want to have relationships with people who aren't Christians because I don't want to be tainted. I don't want to go down that pathway. And sometimes, as Christians, we pendulum swing to withdrawing from the culture. Other times, we pendulum swing the other way, and we engulf ourselves in the culture so much that people don't see any difference in us and the rest of the culture. Jesus calls us to a very balanced Place that if we're there, should make us uncomfortable. He talks about it in his prayer to the Father in John 17. And in John 17, in that prayer that is contained there, it's going to turn, we read about this position 
that we are in. And Jesus says this in verse 15 as he prays. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So we are to remain in the world, but be set apart from sin. We are to be part of this culture, but not allow this culture to be part of us. And to do that, to be light and salt, in my experience, makes me uncomfortable. Barbara and I have always tried, ever since we've been married, to have relationships with people who don't know Jesus. And it's not always easy. We find ourselves in precarious spots sometimes, not knowing, what should I do here? What should I do here? Several years ago, we were invited to dinner in someone's home. Uh, the vast majority of the couples that were going to be there did not know Jesus. That's what we want. We said yes. We found out that we were going to have dinner together and watch a movie. So Barbara looked up the movie and saw, like so many today, overall it was decent, except they had to throw in one yucky scene to get the rating up so people would be willing to watch it. So we thought, what are we going to do? Should we cancel dinner? What should we do? This may not be your solution, but what we did, because we make a commitment to spend time with people who need Jesus, is Barbara researched where that was going to happen, and I left the room. And I went, and I legitimately needed to make some phone calls, so I went out in the garage and made some phone calls, got through all that junk, came back in and spent some more time with our friends. You have to figure out how to be salt and light. But the answer is not to totally withdraw from culture. The answer is not also to totally embed yourself in the culture so that you end up sinning yourself. We have to live in that, that, that place where we can still be salt and light. I'm out hunting with non-Christians all the time. And sometimes when you're around non-Christian guys, people who have really no knowledge of Jesus Christ at all, Sometimes conversation goes where it shouldn't. I don't feel comfortable with that. So maybe when that starts happening, if we're out in the field, I'll kind of go off in my own direction for a while. Or maybe I'll get up and go check the dogs or whatever. We have to find a pathway. Here's the question. Am I even in a position where people around me can see the salt and light of Jesus? Am I even around non-Christians? A lady came up to me after the first hour talking about how she's living this out. She's doing it through a community organization. And, and, and she shared with me how uncomfortable it is sometimes that you are right where the Lord wants you to be. Got to be careful that we don't allow our involvement in the culture to actually cause us to fall or stumble or sin. But we can't withdraw from culture either. So here Jesus says, we are in this phenomenal place to be salt and light. And maybe for us it takes in your planner, purposeful planning to set aside time for people who don't know Jesus. Maybe it involves creating a new pathway 
through a community organization or a club or a hobby that you enjoy so too you can be around people who desperately need Jesus Christ. Because we have a great opportunity to be salt and light. And Jesus calls us to be salt and light in a lost world. Father, I thank you for these verses and the reminder that as your followers, as Jesus' followers, we are to be reflecting his light. Help us, Father, to evaluate where we are in our light bearing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.